Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. So joining us is, of course, Professor Art Leonard. Art is chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. We have three great segments for you today. The first is going to be on international human rights and developments under the Biden administration. The second is on discrimination in uh, targeting of gay men in New York City. And the third is on HIV employment discrimination. So let's get right to it. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. How are things in Florida, Eric? (laughs) Florida is fantastic. It's just beautiful here. Every once in a while, you have to escape. Uh, It's a little bit Trumpier than New York City. I will say that. Well, I hope you're not anywhere near (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. No, I'm not. But every time I see a red hat, I'm sort of like... I can feel all of that old trauma coming back. Um, All right, well, let's dig right in. We have fantastic, uh, three fantastic cases that we're going to talk about today. Um, I wanted to start out with um, something that wasn't real, that I didn't see a lot of press because the Biden administration has been doing so much, including this new uh, COVID relief bill. Um, But I wanted to, and Law Notes certainly highlights an important Biden administration memo that affects the US's approach to international LGBT rights. The memo calls for agencies to fight criminalization of LGBT identity, to protect LGBT refugees and asylum seekers, to work with international organizations to address discrimination. And of course, President Obama issued the first memo directing US agencies to promote international LGBT rights back in 2011. This order replaces and builds on that. And Trump's approach, of course, wasn't just to turn away. The Trump State Department had a commission on unalienable rights that worked to promote and advance so-called natural law, which threatened protections for women and LGBT people around the world. So on top of all of that, we also have an interesting case from abroad to cover as part of this segment, which can serve as a reminder that I don't know how Art Leonard does it, but you are able to cover in Law Notes international issues affecting LGBT legal developments as well. Art, this is a lot to cover and it's interesting stuff. Let's dig right in. Okay, well, uh, you really said much of what would would be said about the uh, memorandum. The memorandum was issued on February 4th and what is important, and and, uh, this is something about Biden's uh, executive orders and memoranda, he sets deadlines. And he doesn't just state policies and say, you guys should do this, you guys should do that. He says, I want you to report back to me on what you're doing. And I want regular reporting on how you're progressing. And I'm going to publish your reports. We're not going to keep them secret. So, you know, he, he says here, within 100 days of the date of this memorandum, that is 100 days from February 4th, or as soon as possible thereafter, all agencies engaged abroad shall review and as appropriate and consistent with applicable law, take steps to rescind any directives, orders, regulations, policies, or guidance inconsistent with this memorandum, including those issued from January, 2017 to January, 2020, 2021. 
of say, okay, so without mentioning Trump, he basically says anything issued during the Trump administration, uh, <laughs> anything to their extent inconsistent with this memo, you're supposed to rescind them, revoke them, overrule them. Uh, the heads of such agencies shall also, within 180 days of the date of this memorandum, report to the president on their progress in implementing this memorandum and recommend additional opportunities and actions to advance the human rights of LGBTQI plus persons around the world. And uh, agencies are supposed to prepare a report within 180 days of the date of this memo and annually thereafter on their progress towards advancing these initiatives. The reports have to be submitted to uh, the State Department, which is gonna compile an, a report on the federal government's progress overall in advancing these initiatives for transmittal to the president. And the State Department shall make a version of the compiled annual report. So this is gonna be required annually, available to the Congress and the public. And uh, among the other issues addressed in the memorandum are the refugee process. So President Biden wants to revive, after four years of the Trump administration, uh, that the US will once more be hospitable to refugees. Uh, remember uh, that under the Obama administration, there was a rather high uh, cap. The president sets the cap on the number of refugee claims that can be uh, granted each year. And there was a relatively high cap as well over 100,000, I think, under the Obama administration. Trump reduced it to something like, what, 18,000 or something? Uh, and uh, of course, since he was excluding people from all different kinds of countries, countries where there are a lot of Muslims living, et cetera, et cetera, uh, he was really cutting things down. Uh, the State Department is directed to devote particular attention to LGBTQ plus issues as it compiles its annual country reports on human rights. And he charges the Homeland Security Department to provide appropriate training so that those who are supposed to make refugee decisions are well-versed in the relevant issues and can appropriately consider claims by LGBTQ plus refugees. And also the memorandum wants to revive the US efforts that were being undertaken under Hillary Clinton and John Kerry when they were secretaries of state for Obama to be a leader in pressuring other countries to repeal anti-gay laws and policies and to enter into alliances intended to strengthen that effort. And I mean, really, you can say that uh, from the statements he was making uh, back in January after he was nominated, Anthony Blinken, the new Secretary of State, is very much on board with this. Uh, among other things, he will revive the position of special envoy for LGBTQ issues, which was established under the Obama administration and was not continued during the Trump administration. And he also named an out gay man to be the department's official spokesperson who has already started giving his press conferences. Uh, someone who is uh, a veteran of the CIA and the National Security Council as well, very well versed and uh, Ned uh, Price who superbly qualified to be the State Department's official spokesperson. So, uh, you know, as far as our outward facing policies of the US towards the rest of the world, 180 degrees reversal from the Trump administration, pretty much. Wow. Uh, the other case you mentioned is a, uh, a new uh, decision by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Uh, the Inter-American Commission uh, interprets and uh, I, don't, I don't think you can say enforces because the uh, convention, American Convention on Human Rights is not an enforceable document in any 
legalistic sense. It is an aspirational document uh, to which countries sign and indicating that they are on board with the human rights principles that it embodies. So what happens is people can file uh, complaints or petitions with the commission, asking the commission to address the failure of a country, which is a signatory to the convention, to live up to their promise. And in this case, uh, two uh, natives of Jamaica who are no longer living there, uh, both fled, uh, a gay man and a lesbian, both fled Jamaica because of the horrific situation that LGBT people face there. Uh, both were victims of violence. Gareth Henry, uh, the gay man, Simone Edwards, the lesbian, uh, they were victims of violence because of their sexual orientation. Uh, Henry uh, alleged in his petition he was often harassed and beaten since he was a child due to his sexual orientation. He was brutally assaulted twice by police officers and his attempts to report the assaults were futile because the police either refused to investigate or worse threatened him if he filed a formal complaint against police officers. And he also says he avoided seeking medical care because uh, the healthcare personnel routinely discriminated against LGBT people in Jamaica. Uh, he ultimately fled Jamaica. He was granted asylum in Canada, and he uh, is now a Canadian citizen. But anyone has standing to petition the uh, the commission to do an investigation and write a report. Meanwhile, Edwards, a lesbian who suffered a homophobic attack in 2008, she almost died. Uh, while at home, she was shot multiple times by two men belonging to a homophobic gang. Her injuries were permanent. She lost a kidney and part of her liver. She and her brother encountered, she said, insurmountable obstacles when trying to report the crime. They were never even asked to go to court. One of the shooters was never arrested. The other was arrested, but then released. She fled Jamaica in September 2009 and has been granted asylum in the Netherlands. Right, so they both ended up in very gay-friendly countries, uh, but they feel it their duty to try to get Jamaica to get in line with the human rights that are promised under the convention. So uh, the commission did an investigation and it compiled a report that stated December 31, 2020. The way the commission proceeds is they send the report to the country in question with requests to be informed how the country is going to change their laws or their practices to comply with the convention. And they give them some time. They don't make the report public. They don't publish it uh, until it seems pretty clear that the country involved is not taking the necessary action. Now, they're particularly targeting, and, and this is a relic from the Victorian age, the Offenses Against the Person Act of 1864. Right, so mid 19th century, uh, when uh, Jamaica was a British colony, British possession, uh, and throughout the British Empire, uh, we find these laws. It's similar to the uh, to the sodomy law that was uh, declared unconstitutional in India a few years ago, for example, uh, and uh, it authorizes up to ten years in prison for uh, anal sex or acts of gross indecency between men. Uh, and uh, several other laws are used also to oppress uh, women as well who engage in same-sex activity. And uh, what the uh, commission did was they urged Jamaica to repeal offending laws and take other measures to protect LGBT Jamaicans from hate crimes, etc. cetera. Uh, but Jamaica has not been responsive. They haven't moved to repeal the law and so forth. 
Uh, and so the commission finally decided to publish this uh, report in the form of a decision. And uh, now, uh, you know, the, the ball is in Jamaica's court. Uh, they have been called out on their failure to abide by the convention, American Convention on Human Rights that they signed. And uh, I mean, there's no action that can be taken against them, except uh, I suppose other countries that are signatories could uh, impose sanctions on Jamaica. Uh, maybe this is something for the US State Department to think about. I was wondering, we didn't get to cover at the very top, but I know our listeners are going to want to know a little bit about uh, the Supreme Court. I know you've been watching the Supreme Court uh, probably daily, maybe even hourly, um, certainly when they release uh, opinions in the morning. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the cases that you're watching very, very quickly? Uh, Is Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. That's the the, the case about the Catholic social services in Philadelphia that uh, refused to deal with same-sex couples. Uh, There have been uh, two developments there. Uh, One is, of course, that the Supreme Court heard, heard argument in that case. Uh, the uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeals had upheld the district court's refusal to grant an injunction against the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Catholic Social Services wanted them to order the city of Philadelphia to renew their contract to do foster care, uh, vetting of potential parents and then provide foster care services uh, for which the city was compensating them under a contract that expired and that the city refused to renew because of this refusal to uh, serve same-sex couples. The city has a human rights law that uh, specifically applies to uh, organizations that provide services to the public. Uh, Catholic Social Services claims that they are not a public accommodation, uh, which uh, the judge didn't uh, agree with, uh, and that decided they were they were subject to this law, which covers sexual orientation. Uh, the Supreme Court heard argument early in its term, and so I keep track on the Supreme Court's website they have a calendar posted on the entry page of the website and it's color-coded by day for what they do on that day and when they have opinions ready to release uh, they give only a, a few days notice it's, it's not like it's, it's far in advance they shade that day on the calendar yellow on a day they're going to issue an opinion so i periodically check to see when the next opinion day is and when it is at 10 o'clock i get on there <laughs> and uh, start refreshing my browser to see because the opinions pop up. And they have issued uh, like two opinions over the past few weeks, uh, but they haven't issued this one yet. And uh, in a certain sense, it's overdue because uh, some of the opinions they've been issuing were argued uh, after this one was argued. But uh, if the court is gonna be very divided about it, it'll probably take longer uh, since they'll be concurring, perhaps concurring opinions, perhaps dissenting opinions, and that takes longer. Uh, so it could be any time. But the other thing I'm watching very closely is a petition for review that has been filed by the Gloucester County School Board in Virginia in the case of Gavin Grimm. Remember Gavin Grimm? This is going oh, back yes. years now. Uh, Gavin Grimm has long since graduated from Gloucester High School. And in fact, parts of the case became moot at that point. But the overall case did not become moot. Uh, the claim that uh, for example, that they refused to issue him a transcript with his uh, showing his appropriate gender, uh, which uh, the district court ordered them to do. And uh, the district court ultimately did issue a judgment that Gavin Grimm's rights were violated when he was not allowed to use the boys' restroom facilities during his senior year in high school there. 
uh, and that was upheld by the Third Circuit. Uh, and so uh, the Gloucester County School Board has filed a, a petition for cert. And uh, you would think this case is so moot that the Supreme Court wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. But we have to remember that earlier in this litigation, the court did grant cert. Uh, the court granted cert during the last year of the Obama administration, and the case was scheduled for oral argument in March of 2017. But when uh, Trump came in in January 2017 and uh, appointed uh, his uh, infamous Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, they withdrew the Obama administration's policy, uh, and therefore they said that uh, the deference that was paid to the policy by the Third Circuit uh, shouldn't be paid anymore and the case should be remanded back and the oral argument should be canceled and the Supreme Court followed their suggestion, vacated the Third Circuit's decision, remanded for reconsideration in light of the Trump administration's new position. Uh, but the, uh, the court sent it back to the district court, which ultimately concluded, doesn't matter what the Trump administration thinks that Title IX requires, that's a question of law for us. And we think Title IX requires uh, that uh, they treat transgender people according to uh, the gender with which they identify. Uh, and the Bostock decision of last June only solidifies this by saying that uh, discrimination because of gender identity is sex discrimination and Title IX bans sex discrimination. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we have an interesting case right here in New York. All right, next up, we are looking at a case of local interest. Holden v. Port Authority of New York and New Jersey is a federal lawsuit that involves an alleged pattern of discrimination by the Port Authority by targeting and wrongly arresting men they perceive to be gay. On our last episode, uh, we talked a little bit about law enforcement officers in New York City and across the country who've unfairly targeted the LGBT community for raids, harassment, arrest, using loitering and lewdness statutes. Art, tell us about this interesting case from New York City. All right, and I'm, I'm hoping that this case is a matter of ancient history because the arrests that led to this lawsuit being filed took place in 2014. Uh, you know, and, and it's sort of amazing. It, it shows you how long it takes uh, to get this stuff before a federal court and then to actually have a federal court uh, make decisions. Uh, this is uh, from, from U.S. District Judge John G. Coltell of the Southern District of New York, uh, who uh, was, I believe, appointed by Bill Clinton. But at any rate, uh, these two men in this case, Cornell Holden and Miguel Mejia, both of whom were arrested by plainclothes police officers of the Port Authority Police Department after exiting the men's room on the second floor of the Port Authority bus terminal in New York. Uh, and uh, the ironic thing, and, and it's pointed out in the court's decision and mentioned in our Law Notes account, is there was a lawsuit involving the very, very same sort of thing that took place uh, years ago, uh, nine years before what happened in this case. Very similar. Let's see if I can find this. Martinez against the Port Authority, uh, a decision from September 2, 2005, in which a Manhattan jury found that by arresting men in the restroom under the circumstances described in that case, 
they were engaged in an unconstitutional policy or practice that resulted in a deprivation of the plaintiff's constitutional rights by arresting men perceived to be gay or arresting men without probable cause. At that point, uh, that was uh, at the PATH concourse uh, rather than the Port Authority bus terminal, but that's also the Port Authority, you know, whether it's the bus terminal or, or PATH. Uh, this case, it was the Port Authority bus terminal uh, and these two men uh, were both arrested during the summer of 2014. Uh, according to their complaint, uh, in, in one case, in the case of uh, Mr. Holden, uh, the case was dismissed. Uh, in the case of Mejia, it actually went to a trial in Manhattan Criminal Court and uh, he was acquitted. Uh, the issue is, were they singled out because of their sexual orientation. Now, Mr. Holden is gay, makes no bones about it. He's a gay African-American man. He was on his way to work. Uh, he used the restroom. Uh, he said uh, he, there was only one uh, unoccupied urinal when he went in there and he had to relieve himself. He went to that urinal. He said there was this man next to him who kept glancing over and uh, Finally, the man left and he was about to leave, but then he suffered a nosebleed. And so he waited until his nosebleed stopped and he exited and uh, he was arrested. And he said, what are you arresting me for? And they said, you know what you did. Uh, he didn't know. Uh, he, he said that uh, from the way he was dressed and groomed, he thought it was likely that they uh, targeted him as gay and he is gay. Mr. Mejia, uh, very similar very similar, uh, saying that uh, he went in there, there was only one open urinal, he stood there and there's a person next to him that keeps looking over, etc. He walks out and they arrest him. But uh, these guys were arrested and they brought suit against the Port Authority Police Department and the arresting officers and other officers who were around and their commander and all this kind of stuff in the city of New York. Uh, well, not the city of New York, the Port Authority, because the Port Authority is not a city agency. Uh, but the Port Authority police and the Port Authority itself. And uh, the uh, court had refused to dismiss. Uh, there was some discovery and uh, now, now there's a summary judgment motion. Uh, the court did grant summary judgment on their due process claim, but refused to grant summary judgment on their Fourth Amendment and 14th Amendment claims. The Fourth Amendment claim is for false arrest. They said there was no probable cause to arrest them. The 14th Amendment is an equal protection claim uh, and, uh, and said uh, that uh, they were singled out because they were gay and that violates their rights under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, the uh, argument that was made on the, on the motion for summary judgment was that there is no policy of singling out gay people, but there was a prior uh, opinion where a jury found there was 10 years before. And so the question was, and this was uh, posed in discovery, what did you do in response to that earlier jury verdict in the way of training and instructing your officers? And the answer was basically nothing. They claim they give sensitivity training to all their officers about LGBT issues, but there's no specific training with respect to the criteria for deciding whether to arrest somebody for their conduct in the men's room. And it's sort of left to the discretion of the police officers. And in 2012 and 2013, there were very few arrests. In 2014, it exploded all of a sudden. Uh, from, from a handful of arrests, it went to like six, over 60 arrests of men. And uh, 
the plaintiffs were able to get affidavits from other men who had been also arrested under these circumstances and had the charges dismissed because there was no evidence they were doing anything wrong. Uh, so this is harassment. It's targeting. And the court refused to dismiss it. I mean, the officers claimed uh, that they should have qualified immunity. And the court said, what do you mean qualified immunity? What about the Windsor decision? And we're not talking about the Supreme Court's Windsor decision. We're talking about the Windsor decision by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which was appealed to the Supreme Court and affirmed on different grounds. The Second Circuit held that uh, sexual orientation discrimination claims and the Equal Protection Clause get heightened scrutiny. And the Second Circuit having held that, you can't claim qualified immunity on the theory that there is no controlling authority in this circuit on uh, whether it violates the Equal Protection Clause to single out gay men. The court said, based on the allegations of uh, failure to properly train and failure to properly instruct, we may have uh, municipal liability here or the equivalent of it because the Port Authority is a government agency. We may have that the, uh, the agency itself has liability, not just the police officers. Uh, so uh, denial of summary judgment, this case will go to trial unless it gets settled. Uh, and very interesting if we go to a jury trial again and we get yet another jury verdict in a case like this. Uh, but you know, you'd think we're in the 1950s or something, you know, to read about this kind of stuff going on in 2014. No, I don't think it's going to surprise many of our listeners, particularly, you know, we just, we just got rid of the walking while trans ban, uh, here in New York, where police and law enforcement officers were harassed, harassing people because they were women of color. They were gender non-conforming. Um, so, you know, targeting people that are gender non-conforming, people of color who are queer, uh, using these lewdness uh, statutes, the loitering for the purpose of prostitution, um, is is nothing new. Uh, it's just not as as covered as it should be. And it was interesting to read this case. Uh, in Law Notes, and I'm glad we were able to highlight it. It's a really, really interesting case that does illustrate just how long these cases can drag on. Um, let's go ahead and take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about our very last case. All right, we're back. Next up, we have an employment discrimination case brought under the Americans with Disabilities Act. People living with HIV continue to face discrimination in employment, in healthcare, and other areas. This case involves a plaintiff who is a traveling nurse alleging that he was wrongfully terminated by his employer nursing agency when they discovered he was HIV positive. There's also a claim that a questionnaire that required the plaintiff and his treating physician to answer questions about the plaintiff's HIV status was intrusive and violated the ADA. Uh, Art, tell us about this case. Okay, this is this is a bit complicated. Uh, I, I actually went back through the article and put together a chronology for myself oh, so wow. that I can tell this story. Uh, this, uh, the, uh, the plaintiff is uh, Dustin Berman, B-U-H-R-M-A-N-N. -N. Uh, he was diagnosed as HIV positive in 2012, but the incidents that took place that led to his, uh, his lawsuit took place in 2018. Uh, and at the time, he was in undetectable, undetectable viral load. He's, you know, taking his medications. So in, on April 10, 2018, he accepted an offer of employment from uh, the defendant in this case, Aureus Medical Group, 
which employs and assigns traveling nurses. Uh, they had offered him a position at a hospital in Colorado. He was a Colorado resident, so this was a good match. And after he was he received the offer, he was given a confidential medical history questionnaire to fill out. Uh, and it asked them, does he have any bloodborne contagious diseases? He checked no. In his own mind, he said, because his HIV was undetectable, he felt that he could answer no to that question. So at any rate, uh, after they received the form, they uh, confirmed that uh, he was hired. I mean, the offer was contingent on him filling out the medical form and stuff. Uh, and uh, he went to work at this hospital in Colorado. Uh, that was uh, in April. A few months later, he injured himself when a heart monitor that he was moving while transporting a patient fell on his toe. He filed an accident report. In the accident report, he really, he authorized the release of his medical records. Uh, his medical records were obtained from his doctor and on July 10th, Aureus's safety coordinator received his medical records. His medical records showed that he was HIV positive, but didn't indicate that in the form that they were given to Aureus, didn't say when he was diagnosed. So she looked at that and she said, hmm, this is interesting. On his uh, confidential questionnaire, he checked no. And here it says he's HIV positive. Maybe he maybe he was diagnosed after he did the questionnaire. You know, maybe there's no problem here. Uh, and she just gave it a pass. Uh, and she and she and since he would hired on a short term contract to just fill a vacancy, a short term vacancy at the hospital, his contract was going to expire in a few weeks anyway. So she figured no biggie. What she didn't know was that. Uh, someone at Aureus had offered him a new position in Alaska. And uh, in connection with that, they gave him a new form to fill out because it's like he's applying for a new job. Uh, so he got a new confidential medical form. And again, he checked no on the HIV. All right, so they, they received this new one and uh, it rings bells because they know he's HIV positive now. And he said no. And they have what they call a zero tolerance policy for falsifying any documents submitted to the company. So, uh, you know, but the, but the odd thing was the, uh, the safety officer who received this form contacted him, Mr. Berman and said, oh, you seem to have made a mistake here. You said no on the HIV and we know you're HIV positive. You have to correct that. So he said, okay, correct that. But now they sent him a new questionnaire, specifically focusing on bloodborne pathogens for him to answer, which asks for much more information, which asks for a certification from his doctor that uh, he's able to perform the job without uh, endangering himself or anyone, et cetera, et cetera. And he found that kind of intrusive and he sat on it for a while <clears throat> because this Alaska job wasn't supposed to start until September. So he sat on it and finally on September 5th, he emailed the, uh, the operations manager who had contacted him and said, I find this questionnaire rather intrusive. Do I have to, is my job contingent on me filling this out? And she says, yes, yes it is. But she also, she also contacted the, uh, the person who had processed his earlier form and, and said, uh, because he did, he did fill out the form and he submitted it later that day. Uh, because his job in Alaska was supposed to start within days. 
and now we have these two uh, human resources type people within Aureus who know that he had falsified not only the second questionnaire, but the first questionnaire because they knew he was HIV positive and that he knew he was HIV positive. In fact, by then, from uh, his doctor's uh, response, uh, they knew that he'd been diagnosed in 2012. So even the first questionnaire that he filled out, he had falsified. And so they decided he had to be fired. So uh, they had his supervisor contact him. He was actually en route to Alaska when he was contacted. He was in the Seattle airport waiting for his flight and his cell phone uh, rings and it's the superintendent saying, we're firing you for falsifying records. We have a zero tolerance policy and you falsified the records. Uh, so he filed a complaint with the EEOC, which enforces the Americans with Disabilities Act, and you have to exhaust your administrative remedies. They gave him a right to sue letter uh, rel relatively quickly because his suit was on file by the spring of 2019. And uh, based on the allegations in his complaint, the federal district judge, uh, R. Brooke Jackson of uh, the uh, federal district court uh, in uh, Colorado, uh, uh, denied a motion to dismiss on the grounds that based on the allegations of the complaint, there was a possibility he had stated a valid claim. Uh, but after discovery, there's a motion for summary judgment. And the judge decided that the motion for summary judgment on his complaint regarding the questionnaires had to be uh, granted to uh, Aureus. Uh, because they had followed the protocol required under the Americans with Disabilities Act. You're not allowed to ask people medical questions before you make them a job offer. After you make them a job offer, you can ask them uh, questions about their health uh, because uh, you need to know before you put them to work whether they're physically able to do the work or whether there's going to be a problem. Uh, and. Uh, so he was, it was okay for them to ask them on the confidential medical questionnaire whether he had a bloodborne pathogen. And if he indicated yes, it is legal under the ADA to follow up with a bloodborne pathogen questionnaire asking more information because the statute specifically authorizes an employer to deny employment to someone uh, whose uh, medical condition, which has been identified as a disability under the act, could present a direct threat to the health and safety of others. And uh, so it's, it's uh, legitimate for them to ask his doctor to certify that his condition is not such as to present a danger. I would say that because he, his uh, viral load was undetectable, the chances that he could transmit HIV to a patient or a coworker are nil. But the court refused to grant summary judgment on the claim that they discharged him because he was HIV positive. Now, their defense is, no, we discharged him because he falsified the records by not disclosing his HIV status when we had a right to learn about it after we had made him an offer of a job. And we have a zero tolerance policy on that. We don't want people falsifying records. We take that very seriously. And during discovery, they produced evidence, one, that they were actually employing other nurses who were HIV positive. They said, we don't refuse to employ HIV positive people and that uh, they uh, uh, had consistently fired people when they discovered that they had falsified their applications. All right, so uh, 
difficult call here for the judge. Uh, the judge said, well, I'm not going to grant summary judgment yet because, uh, you know, we haven't had a trial. We've had discovery, but we have material facts that are disputed. I don't hold out a lot of hope that Mr. Berman is going to win this case, ultimately. So, Art, do you have a an of note for us? I know your answer is going to be yes. So I always have an of note. What and is your of note for us? This is a, uh, a significant new decision uh, late in February, February 24th, in the Indiana Court of Appeals. It's a consolidation of three cases in which parents petitioned the court to change the gender marker of their children, their minor children, on their birth certificates to reflect their gender identity. Uh, one from a, a very, very young child, uh, two from teenagers. And uh, these cases went through two different, they were from different parts of the state, so they went through two different trial judges. The trial judges all said no. Uh, one of them said, I don't have any authority to do this for a minor. Uh, the other just without explanation, but uh, stating a concern that they're young, you know, they might change their mind. We shouldn't be changing their birth certificate now. Uh, so the issue for the Indiana Court of Appeals is, does a parent, can a parent, petition a court to change the gender marker of their minor child on their birth certificate uh, consistent with what the child and uh, presumably a psychiatrist, a psychologist, some healthcare professional has diagnosed has gender dysphoria and uh, does not identify with the gender that they were indicated at birth. And the Court of Appeals says, yes, yes, the, judge, the, the parents can petition for it. The court does have authority, but they say, uh, this isn't, this isn't a, a simple-minded case of just saying, okay, the petition was filed in good faith and, and the doctors say they have gender dysphoria. What we think is because it's a minor, the court should have to decide whether it's in the best interest of the child to grant this petition. And uh, we're going to we're going to take a look at the statute on name changes because you know this is commonly there's also a petition for a name change. In fact, at least one of these three cases was also a petition for a name change. In one of them, the name had already been changed. Uh, we had a teenager who was just a few years short of the age of majority. Uh, so the court said, we'll look at the name change statute, because under the name change statute, if an adult wants a name change, all we look at is, is it uh, requested in good faith? Is it uh, not uh, for the purpose of defrauding anybody? And we grant it. Uh, there is not much uh, judgment by the trial judge on that. But for the name change for a child, the statute says you have to decide it's in the best interest of the child, and it lists factors. We're going to adopt those factors and use them for this as well. Uh, and that got a dissenting opinion. So it's, it's a two to one decision. But I think it's important. I mean, it's the Indiana Court of Appeals of all things. I mean, Indiana state courts are pretty conservative, uh, but they're waking up. Wow. That's this court is woke, at least the majority of this court is woke. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, Art. I hope you get outside and enjoy this nice spring weather that you're having in New York City. I know it's spring break for you next week at school. And thank you guys so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes. Uh, make sure you leave us five stars, leave us a comment. It's how other people discover us. We'll be back soon.